Welcome back to Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. This is part two of the Texarkana Phantom Case. If you haven't listened to the first part yet, please go back and listen to part one. There's a lot of information there that you'll want to hear. I just want to say quickly, thank you so much for all your support. I've gotten some really nice emails recently, and I really appreciate your kind words. And thank you so much for listening. I'll put the email in the show notes and also recite it at the end of this episode. Also, please let me know if it is okay to read your email in the feedback section, which we will do eventually at the end of the show. And also let me know if I can use your name or if you want to be anonymous. Okay, on with part two. This is a true crime podcast and it contains material and descriptions that may be disturbing to some people. This podcast is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Okay, let's do a quick recap for part two. February 1946, we have a young couple parking in Lover's Lane. A masked man shines a flashlight at them, orders them out of the car, and then sadistically assaults first the male, then the female. They survived this attack, although the young man was in serious condition and remained hospitalized for several weeks. Jimmy Hollis and Mary Jean Larray were the ones who were able to give us the description of the attacker, so we know he is approximately six feet tall and was wearing a white mask with eyes and mouth holes cut out. Note, I have found that I might have been pronouncing Mary Jean's last name incorrectly, and it is pronounced Larray. I apologize. I had heard it said as Larry a few times before this and thought that was the correct way, but I now believe it is Mary Jean Larray. Then in March of 46, there is another young couple, Richard Griffin and Pollyann Moore, parking in a different lover's lane. Sadly, they do not survive the attacks and are found shot to death the next morning. It is thought the young woman was killed and raped outside of the car and put back in. In April of 46, we have a young couple in high school, Paul Martin and Betty Jo Booker, parking on a road near the Spring Lake Park. They were both found shot to death the next day, their bodies miles apart and away from the car. The final attack attributed to the Phantom was in May of 46 and was at the Starks farmhouse on the Arkansas side of Texarkana. Virgil Starks was shot twice in the back of the head while sitting in his living room chair. The attacker shot him through the closed double window. Virgil died at the scene. Katie Starks was shot twice in the face while trying to call for help, but managed to get out of the house and run to get help from neighbors. She was driven to the hospital, and although she too was in a serious condition, managed to survive. So now we will get into a deeper dive into the main suspects. One of the prime suspects was, of course, Ewell Sweeney. On Friday, June 28, 1946, Arkansas State Police Officer Max Tackett, a rookie at the time, found a car that had been reported stolen in a parking lot. He staked out the car until someone came back to it. That someone was Peggy Sweeney, who had just married Ewell Sweeney. Tackett arrested 21-year-old Peggy. She told him they had just gotten married, but her husband was in Atlanta, Texas, trying to sell another stolen car. 
Max Tackett had a theory about a car being stolen on a night of a murder, while a previously stolen car was also abandoned on the night of a murder. Because of this, he was looking for Yule Sweeney hard. One of the books I recommended in part one was Phantom Killer by James Presley. He makes a much better case for Yule Sweeney than I've ever heard before. I never really seriously considered Sweeney until I read this book. I'm not convinced it's Sweeney, though, but Presley puts up a good argument. Sweeney's new wife, who would have been his girlfriend when the murders were taking place, had a lot to say, and most of it was very condemning. However, the accounts she gave were made over the course of a significant amount of time that she was being held. The courts never heard these accounts, and she refused to testify against Jewel Sweeney. Sweeney was never charged with the murders. Of course, she might not have been telling the truth. And, of course, if she was telling the truth, then she was present at at least one murder scene. And what does that make her? It is said that when a lawyer told her that her husband was being held for a murder, she had said, how did they find out? Peggy was arrested on June 28, 1946, and Yule Sweeney was arrested in mid-July, 1946. When Max Tackett caught Yule Sweeney, Sweeney said, please don't shoot me. Tackett replied, I'm not going to shoot you for stealing cars. Sweeney then replied, Mr. Don't play games with me. You want me for more than stealing cars. In the letters that were written up for Peggy, but that she would not sign, there was a lot about the Booker Martin murders. Peggy seemed to indicate in her interrogation letters that she was at the crime scene with Yule Sweeney but that she did not participate in the crimes. However, her story kept changing. Whether she was changing it on her own, or she was being led by the questions they were asking, or if she just heard some of the details while she was being held, her confessions were contradictory. In her first account, she was just sitting in the car while he did the killings. He then drove somewhere else and took a large black leather case out of a coupe that was sitting there empty and told her a friend said he should pick it up for him. It was presumably the saxophone Betty Jo Booker had with her. However, we know the killer did not take the saxophone because it was found in some overgrowth in an area of the park some six months later and it was clear it had been sitting there ever since the murders. In another statement after this one, she said Yule told her he was going to rob someone, and she went with him. After driving around for a while, he picked the coupe to rob. They parked a ways away, and then they both walked up to it together, and he told the boy to get out. He then shot the boy twice. Then Yule went and got his car and backed it up to the coupe. He put the boy in the back seat and made the girl get in the front seat with him. He made Peggy sit in the coop while he was gone. He came back at daybreak, picked Peggy up, and took the black leather case and left. The next statement is even more muddled with stories of Peggy getting in the back seat of the car with the girl and Ewell got in the front seat with the boy and Ewell drove the coop around. When he stopped the car, everyone got out and he shot the boy. He was about to leave when he saw the boy walking, so he went back and shot him two more times. Then he drove somewhere else, got out of the car with the girl, and told Peggy to stay there. 
She heard gunshots, and then he came back. He got the saxophone out of the car and threw it over the fence. This statement was made in November after the actual saxophone inside its case was found in October. So this is how Peggy would know that the saxophone was thrown in the location where it was found. Okay, so now we have um, Lone Wolf Gonzalez's interpretation of the scene. What his understanding was of what happened April 14th. The killer watched Martin and Booker in their car for a while. He then walked up to Martin's car with a pistol and demanded to get inside. He drove Martin's car around North Park Road. He demanded Martin to get out. He shot Martin in the face. Blood splattered on the bushes. Martin ran off. The killer shot him three more times while he was fleeing. He then drove the girl back to where he parked his car near Spring Lake Park. Burker got out and ran. Her high heels made prints in the soft ground. He caught her and pulled her inside his car. He then drove her out to Morris Lane, where he attacked and killed her. Could Yule Sweeney have done these crimes? He was just a car thief, as far as anyone knew up until that point. Yule Sweeney does have a sad background. Most family members both siblings and cousins, said that both of his parents were not loving towards him. And, in fact, he seemed to not be wanted. One story goes that the whole family was eating dinner in the house, and his father, the reverend of a Baptist church, made him stay outside the whole time. Ewell told one of his sisters he was starving and begged her to bring him one biscuit. His parents divorced, and his father got basically what was considered custody back then. He was supposed to stay with his dad during the nine months of school and could go with his mom in the summer if she wanted him. However, it didn't quite work out that way. He was living with grown-up siblings part of the time, and then part of the time with his dad, and part of the time with his mom. Yule said one of his stepfathers was abusive. Yes, one of... Both parents remarried more than once. Yule spent time in a reform school when he was a youngster and even had a serious injury when another reform school student hit him in the back with a two-by-four. He ended up getting a spinal hemorrhage from that. There was also something said about an injury he had as an infant, but the details cannot be found. His family was definitely dysfunctional and it sounds like he was at best neglected and at worst abused. There was a definite lack of love given to the boy. Later on, there were accounts of an incident where Sweeney had his wife Peggy hold a gun on a man while he whipped him with a chain. He seemed to derive pleasure from being able to whip the man while the man was unable to fight back. The afternoon of Friday, May 3rd, Sweeney and Peggy had an argument with her sister over boarding money they owed her. Peggy's sister asked them to leave. Sweeney and Peggy left their house that night. Soon after the Starks murders, it was said Sweeney fled with Peggy to Oklahoma, and he took a job doing hard labor. This was something he very rarely did, so that could point to his guilt. If Yule was the Phantom, then there was a lot to point to Peggy being at most, if not all of, the crime scenes with Yule. If he was the Phantom. 
She herself gave accounts of being at one of the murders, although she refused to sign any of the multiple accounts she gave. Also, not long after the Starks' murders, Yule took Peggy to get married in Shreveport. A wife could not be compelled to testify against her husband. Here are some of the things that point to Yule not being the phantom. Yule's fingerprints did not match any of the latent prints at the Booker-Martin crime scene. Peggy Sweeney recanted her confession. The Texas Rangers and Sheriff Bill Presley were not convinced that Sweeney was the phantom. Sweeney denied being the phantom and never made a confession. Officers including Bowie County Sheriff Presley, Miller County Sheriff Davis, Texas City Chief of Police Runnels, their officers, and both state police departments worked day and night for six months trying to validate Peggy Sweeney's story of their whereabouts. They deduced that Peggy was not telling the truth and that on the night of the murder of Booker and Martin, the couple was sleeping in their car under a bridge near San Antonio. Ewell Sweeney was arrested almost two months after the last murders. Since each took place less than a month apart, it is possible that he was not the killer, as he most likely would have moved on somewhere else to continue killing. His wife was very young, which explains part of her behavior, but there also must have been something a little off about her as well. Some of the police who took her confession statements said the elevator did not go all the way to the top. Her bread was not brown, and other sayings like this. So that could mean she was crazy enough to participate in these crimes with Yule, or she was crazy enough to make false confessions, or she was just odd. Not that you have to be crazy to make false confessions. I do understand how that happens, and it's really sad to see how many have happened um, because it's just been so hard for people to understand it. But in this case, they all thought something was off about her. I went over everything I learned about Yule and Peggy with someone who is in law enforcement that I know. He agreed it seemed unlikely it was Sweeney. He said it was definitely possible Peggy was being led in some parts of her confession letters, especially way back then, whether it was intentional or not. Also, telling the authorities whatever they wanted to hear, but not to the point of signing any of the declarations for some reason. This part really bothered him and us. Then I found out about the letter to her parents. I called to tell him he was right. And here is the clincher. This is a letter from Peggy to her parents while she was being held. It comes from the FBI files and is being read as is with uncorrected spelling and grammatical errors. Dear Mom, Dad, and Kids, We'll write you again today. How are all of you? Fine, I hope. I guess the sheriff on the Texas side and that FBI man had been out to the house, for they was up to see me yesterday. They still think Sweeney killed those people. I don't know what to do. They don't believe me. So what else can I do but to tell them that he did it? They will believe a lie. If I send Sweeney to the chair, that would be on my mind the rest of life. For taken his life when he was not the one that killed that little boy and girl on April 13, I could send him to the chair, then I would be a-killed. That so-and-so that you all rented that house from said that we was in the field on April 14. 
That is a lie. I wish that dad would have said something to him about it too. I don't think they won't send me to the pen, but it is Swinney that they are after. Mr. Philip told them some lie too. I guess he think if they do away with Sweeney that it would help him to get out and that I would married. I wouldn't married him now if I knew I would get out by married him. In my books, he don't rate as high as Sweeney does, and Sweeney don't rate at all. Mother, I don't know if this will pass out of here or not, but I hope so. I find out why the judge wouldn't lower my bond. It's no use in trying to make my bond because an FBI man, you know who I am talking about, would have to go out and look at the land and everything. He would turn it down or he would rise the bonds so high that you can't make it. I find out more than the lawyer. I think you and dad just threw away $250. Sweeney was put away for life for being a habitual criminal for the repeated car thefts a three-strikes-you-are-out program type. Some think they did this because they thought he was actually the Phantom, but they couldn't make a case of it. Some think they did it as a just-in-case he was the Phantom kind of thing, but they weren't completely convinced it was him. Sweeney was released from prison in 1973, but went back a couple of times due to other crimes he committed, such as counterfeiting. After being released in 1974, Ewell Sweeney approached the Gazette to get a writer to help him write a book about his imprisonment and why it was for so long. Not because of stolen cars, he said, but because they had falsely believed him to be the Phantom Killer. He wanted to tell the story of how unfair this was, but he didn't think he could write the book by himself. The editor ended up introducing him to James Presley, who was working for the paper at the time. He told Sweeney he couldn't help him because he was writing another book at the time and was too busy. He did not tell him his uncle had been part of the law enforcement that put him away. In 1994, Sweeney died in a Dallas nursing home at age 77. His ex-wife, Peggy, died in Dallas, too, in 1998 at age 72. Also, on a strange but interesting note, unknown as to whether this was a sick prank or a true confession, an anonymous woman contacted family members of the victims, one in 1999 and another in 2000, apologizing for what her father had done. Yule Sweeney was not known to have ever had a daughter or any children at all. The other main suspect is H.B. Duty Tennyson. October 1948, H.B., or Duty, as was his nickname, committed suicide and left some notes. One of the notes confessed to two double murders. He also said he killed Virgil Starks and tried to get Mrs. Starks. There was a whole riddle he left that had to be solved in order to find the note with the combination to the lockbox where he had the letters for his family. The note read, the opening to my box will be found in the following few lines. In a tube of paper is found, rolls on colors, and it is dry and sound. The head removes, the tail will turn, and inside is the sheet you yearn. Two bees mean a lot when they are together. These clues should lead you to it. 
A note was found inside a fountain pen marked BB for a double broad nib, which was a brand of pen. Poison was found on the cap. It was thought he used the pen to crush up the poison tablets he took. The note inside the pen contained clues to the combination of a lockbox. Not in the mood for playing games, the police forced the lockbox open. Inside was a viewmaster with several rolls of film of Mexico and a stack of papers. Under the stack of papers was a note confessing to the Texarkana killings. The note read, To whom it may concern, This is my last word to you fine people, and you are fine. I want to thank you all for the trouble that you have gone to, to send me to college and to bring me up. You have really been wonderful. My thanks to Ella Lee, this was Mrs. McGee, the owner of the house he was rooming in, for letting me stay with her during my college career, and to Belva Joe, who was Mrs. McGee's 12-year-old daughter, for putting up with me the way she did. She had to, I know, but I fell in love with her about a week ago. If she was older, I would have asked her to marry me, but that would be impossible. Why did I take my own life? Well, when you committed two double murders, you would too. Yes, I did kill Betty Jo Booker and Paul Martin in the city park that night, and killed Mr. Stark and tried to get Mrs. Starks. You wouldn't have guessed it. I did it when Mother was either out or asleep, and no one saw me do it. For the guns, I disassembled them and discarded them in different places. When I am found, which has already been done, Please give this typewriter to Craig, who was Tennyson's older brother, and tell him that I hope that his child is a boy. It will help him in his work. Everything can go wherever you think it will do best, except for the Viewmaster, which will go to Belva Joe. Please take my bankroll and give it to Daddy. I think it should go to him. And tell him I don't want the car now. Well, goodbye, everybody. See you sometime if I make the grade, which will be hard for me to make. H.B. Tennyson. Even though H.B. only mentions the Martin and Booker killings and the Starks attacks, it is thought he meant to imply he did all of the killings, and the reason for only using these names was because he knew them personally. There was an interview with a former neighbor of H.B.'s when he was a kid. He and Don Woods hung out with H.B. a lot. They were close to him and thought he was a good guy. They couldn't ever imagine H.B. being the Phantom. He said that James Freeman lived near them as well and hung out with them sometimes, but not that often. Freeman had started saying derogatory and sexually inappropriate things about women. The Woods boys started to distance themselves from him. When Don Woods, a close friend of H.B.'s, heard of his suicide and subsequent confession letter, he was in shock. He was listening to the radio while he was shaving, and the news came over. He asked his mom if she had heard it. He then finished shaving and told everyone that he had to go to the police station. He never did say what was said at the police station, but his younger brother was certain that Don did not think H.B. had committed the phantom killings. Both Don Woods and James Freeman were in the band with H.B. in high school. And both Don Woods and James Freeman were pallbearers at H.B.'s funeral. 
James Freeman later told authorities, after the funeral, that Duty was with him the night of one of the murders. They were playing chess or checkers, he had told them. Some things that could help point toward H.B. The tool of an usher at the time was a flashlight. H.B. Tennyson was an usher at the Paramount Theater, which is now the Perot Theater. Jimmy Hollis and Mary Jean LeRae saw the movie Three Strangers at the Paramount on the night of Friday, February 22nd. Richard Griffin and Pollyanne Moore saw the movie Snafu at the Paramount on the night of Saturday, March 23rd. Paul Martin saw Black Market Babies on the night of Saturday, April 13th. Betty Jo Booker did not see the movie with him as she was playing in the band at the VFW. H.B. Tennyson was tall for his age. In college, his freshman year, he was six foot three. When he was 16, at the time of the murders, he was around six feet tall. So that does match up with the witness's account of the attacker being six feet. Now we're going to go over some general thoughts about the investigation, um, thoughts about the suspects and the um, rumors that were around. After the May 3rd killing of Virgil Starks and severely injuring Katie Starks, the murders abruptly stopped. Why? One of the suspects, Ewell Sweeney, who was never charged with murder, was however incarcerated. Some people point to that as the reason. However, he was not arrested until over two months after the Starks' attacks. The other prime suspect, H.B. Tennyson, committed suicide in 1948, leaving behind a suicide note implicating himself in the phantom murders. But that was two years after the murders stopped. And then there is James Freeman. He was a friend of H.B.'s and lived next door to Katie Stark's sister. He was known to speak in derogatory and sexually inappropriate ways about women. He, too, killed himself, but much later in life, in 1974. He had lived a largely reclusive life with his mother until her death in 1973. None of these suspects' dates of being out of commission, so to speak, explains why the killing suddenly stopped. Was it one of them? Or was it two of them working together? Was Ewell Sweeney actually the phantom, and did his wife Peggy have something to do with the crimes? Was H.B. Tennyson the phantom? Or was both he and James Freeman the phantom working together in some kind of strange friendship bond over the love of killing and sadistic treatment of couples? Or was it someone entirely different? Someone who was interviewed, but only just, and not thought seriously about? or possibly someone who flew under the radar entirely, and the killing stopped because the killer left the area. Possibly left the area and continued killing somewhere else. It was the 1940s going into the 1950s, and states did not consult with other states about their crimes. It would be decades before any computer databases would be put together and systems like CODIS would be put to work and decades before DNA would help clear cold cases. When John Tennyson, M.D., was asked if he thought the killer was sociopathic, he said, yes, 
When I answer yes to your question, I am mainly affirming my sense that the perpetrator or perpetrators appears to have an incapacity of conscience or difficulty empathizing with the victims. It is probably the case that the perpetrator knew the victims were suffering but didn't care, and the perpetrator probably took pleasure in that suffering. So the perpetrator or perpetrators was probably a sort of sociopathic sadistic hybrid. Unfortunately, in this case, much has been lost. There is no DNA sitting in a box somewhere waiting to be tested. Even the police records have been lost, gone. And that is from both sides of the city, both states. Yeah, explain that. Crazy. Take a look at the crime scene picture of the window at the Starks' home. There are just two holes, as we discussed. Four shots, two holes. It was said to be a closed double window. I went over this with my law enforcement friend, and we went over all different scenarios. I was wanting to know if the shooter had to be someone specially trained with rifles or guns, such as someone in the military. We concluded that we needed to know more about window glass in 1940, when the home was probably built. I did try to do some internet research on it, but found too many different types of windows that were not like the Starks. I would be interested to know more if anyone has an insight. You can find that picture on Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast, and I believe I've already put it on Instagram and as well as the Facebook page. All right, again, just to recommend some of the other things that you would like to check out on this case. It's very interesting. John Tennyson and Jeremy Kennington have YouTube videos out. Um, There's also a Facebook group uh, and a website. Excellent information. They're very thorough. Uh, Kennington said he started putting together information for Wikipedia and Facebook, etc., to gather the truth as so many rumors and falsehoods were out there and they were believed to be the truth, which I really like. I mean, you know, like I said, I really enjoyed the movie, uh, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, but unfortunately, uh, much of the movie was, you know, not factual, and a lot of the ways that they portrayed the killings were... Um, be known to be factual and people you know took the took that and and thought it was fact and you know spread it around so uh john tennyson md grew up hearing about this case in his family as hb was a first cousin once removed he ended up seeing the movie town that dreaded sundown even though he was only eight at the time when he was in medical school he saw that someone had transcribed one of the notes some of the notes on the early internet and he got curious about it. He wanted to, he wanted to know how they ruled him out, HB. He sort of put it on the back burner, and when he heard they were making the new movie, I think this was in 2014, it rekindled his interest, and around 2013, he started asking questions. It was then that he learned about this guy named Jeremy Kennington, who knew a lot about the case. Uh, there's also the doc- new documentary, Murder in the Moonlight, uh, which came out in 2018, is by Jeff Waldridge, W-A-L-D-R-I-D-G-E, and again, it's called Murder in the Moonlight, 2018. There is The Phantom Killer by James Presley. It's a pretty good book, and it's got a lot of information as well. You can go to Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast.com and click the link Get in Touch and send me an email. Uh, 
I will put the link to the website in the show notes. You can also find the picture of the window on that website. I would love to hear your thoughts on any of the cases that we've covered and also any case suggestions you have. Thank you again for listening.